Well, welcome once again to this month's Ask Your Web Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. Um, as always, uh, for those who have tuned in and have not listened to the show before, we broadcast every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8 p.m. on KMUD Garbaville 91.1 FM. Uh, we're discussing a wide range of alternative medicines, uh, health topics related to alternatives, and I'm very pleased, uh, as always, to have Dr. Raymond Pete join us once more. For those who may not know you, Dr. Pete, would you please give our listeners a rundown of your academic and professional background before we introduce our next guest? Um, after studying and teaching uh, the humanities and linguistics and various things, uh, except biology, uh, before 1968, uh, then I went to graduate school in biology to get a PhD in 1972, and uh, specialized in uh, aging physiology of reproduction, but in general, I studied physiology and biochemistry, and since then have been uh, doing short courses and uh, counseling and such. Okay, excellent. All right, and um, this month, uh, very specially, I'm very pleased to welcome a second-generation... Well, actually, that's not true... I, I've called her a second-generation medical herbalist because I didn't understand her father's actual background before. Um, but anyway, um, Sophie Lamb, um, daughter of distinguished medical herbalist Brian Lamb. Uh, welcome to the show, Sophie. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here. So uh, let me let me ask you this. I, I've always called you a second-generation herbalist, uh, but actually uh, your father's background is... Well, my father's background is there's about four generations of doctors and surgeons going back about 200 years. And although they were surgeons and doctors, a big part of the medicines that they used at the time was herbal medicine. So they had their apothecaries at lo- alongside their surgeries. Okay. I know, uh, I know Brian. He's 82 now. <laughs> uh, he qualified, I think, I think I'm right in saying he qualified in 1978 uh, from... Uh, what was then um, the School of Herbal Medicine uh, before the degrees came into place and uh, the the honours degrees that were given to herbal medicines. Uh, and he's been in full-time practice since, and he also manufactures uh, a, a wide range of fluid extracts, syrups, uh, and some time-honoured recipes using medicinal herbs. And um, he has a fairly busy practice as well as working day to day. He does. He's so amazing. So he's nearly 82 and he works full time, gets up very early with the birds and go, you know, works all day long. And um, I'm just amazed at the energy he still has at his age. And I think it's driven by the passion that he has for his job, the love he has for the herbs, the fact that he's 82 and is still discovering and exploring so much because it's it's, it's something that you could study for a lifetime and still not... Um, extinguish all there is to know so yeah he's driven by passion i think absolutely and he's um <clears throat> excuse me like like dr p uh, people that listen to dr p can clearly hear he's very <clears throat> excuse me scientifically grounded in uh, what he's discussing uh, although sometimes his uh, explanation is different from what would be a typical understanding of it and that's because uh, he knows something different um your father also he's very much into the science um in herbal medicine isn't he Oh, he's really into the science. I mean, he spends his lot. I mean, when he's not actually physically preparing herbs or seeing patients or working his dispensary, he's he's researching. He spends um, lots and lots of time researching still. Yeah, and he loves that. Now, am I right in th- am I right in thinking that he 
I don't know for how long, but he came to the America working for a Utah company developing some products for them? Or? Yeah, so um, he used to um, tour America giving lectures on herbal applications for cosmetics. And he's worked for a few network marketing companies designing um, herbal products for them and supplements and encapsulating them. Um, and making them work for a for a large scale company. Yeah. So, uh, do you know how long that was again? He he spent how? Well, I know that he. Um, oh, how long ago was that? Was no, no. How many years he was doing this for? Well, I think it must have stretched over about ten years. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, Sophie, um, winter coughs, colds, preparations are some favourites. Uh, let's get an uh, get an idea of what it what it was like growing up in a household. Uh, on the northernmost tip of Scotland, uh, with an herbalist as a father. Okay, well, <laughs> where there's so I have three sisters. There's four of us daughters together. So when you have four young children growing up, typically speaking, young children develop coughs and chest infections, and that was definitely the case with us. It may have been made worse by the fact that we're growing up in the most we're on the top of the map of the UK, so our home looks over the Orkney Islands. Right at the very top, but really, really incredible herbs grow locally and that are very specific to this area. Um, <clears throat> so we um, my, we have an arbor in the kitchen, and my childhood memories are full of herbs drying on top and syrups being made at the side of the arbor. <clears throat> and yeah, so we all actually had whooping cough as children, all four of us, I believe. But my sister, wow. um, my elder sister, had it the worst. And what Dad did for her, and he did for all of us, was he sliced up thin slices of garlic, smeared the soles of our feet with Vaseline. Wow and applied thin slices of garlic to the soles of our feet and apply, and wrapped around cling film and applied a sock. He would have left it on for a few minutes. I'm not sure how long, because obviously after a time, garlic can actually burn, so you don't want to leave it on for too long. But, you know, within a few minutes, the um, essential oils have gone up, the volatile oils have gone up through the bloodstream, and you're breathing out garlic. And that's what shortened the duration and severity of our hoop and cough as children. Um, we used to pick Tussilago, um, which is Coltsfoot, yeah. and it makes the most incredible syrup because the flowers themselves smell of honey. But by the side of the Argo, we'd do a layer of, and I would, I mean, all four of us were um, lured out to the hills and to the sand dunes and the moors picking herbs. We were lured out by a quarter of a snicker bar each because in those days we weren't given chocolate. <laughs> and um, we'd pick sackfuls of these herbs and we'd go home, we'd do a layer of flowers, a layer of sugar, a layer of flowers. They would macerate by the side of the hot argo, and we'd have the most incredible syrup. And one of the things that my my dad is most well known, known for is he makes an incredible thyme syrup. And thyme, I mean, thyme as a herb fits the need of the lungs like a glove. It's an right. anti-tossive, so it mm-hmm. re- reduces the cough le- reflex. Right. It's anti-edema um, on the lungs when you get swelling of the lungs. Okay. It's expectorant. It helps you spit out the mucus. And it's antiseptic. And he makes yeah. an incredible syrup using D-side water, which in itself is a healing water, right. and molasses. Now that's interesting. Your, your father actually uses a specific water. I think you should yeah. speak about that for a little bit. Just well, all of his extracts are made using... All of his all of his extracts are made using D side water. Now D side D side is a, a well or a spring that, which comes from the Penanic Hills around Aberdeenshire, I believe. My dad actually worked as a consultant for this water company because he understands water very well, and that water is not just water. Wa- different waters have different values and properties. Because um, my dad's also an engineer before he was a herbalist, and he's very scientific. And um, so people, so the royalties, the royal family used to travel to this area of Scotland to drink the healing water, these deicide water, 
and my dad actually extracts all of his herbs in this seaside water. Yeah. How, how far away? Because you, uh, your home is up in a place called Thurso. Yeah. Which is the very northernmost point of Scotland. Yeah. Um, how, how far away is Deeside from Thurso? So it'd be about a five hour drive south. It's a five hours, right? Okay. All right, good. Mm-hmm. Well, you're listening to Ask Your Robe, Dr. Kami D. Garbaville, 91.1 FM. Uh, from 7.30 until 8 o'clock, uh, co- listeners are invited to call in with questions, uh, any questions they might want to pose Sophie, uh, as well as Dr. Pete, who is on the line and is going to be joining us and interjecting. We're going to be questioning him about some of the science uh, about some of these things that Sophie's going to talk about. Um, I did want to say that um, a little bit of the background, just for people that are listening, uh, in terms of England's law and herbal medicine and it being protected, um, in 1154, Henry II institutionalised common law, uh, and it's been the basis of the legal systems of England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Ireland, plus many other countries around the world until the present time. And common law is based on the premise that everything is legal unless it's deemed illegal. Pretty straightforward, huh? Now, herbal medicine throughout history has always been protected under common law. However, in 1542, the medical profession at that time wanted to prevent herbalists from practising. Fortunately, Henry VIII, as an avid user of herbs, came to the rescue and implemented the Herbalist Charter, which underpinned the herbalist right to practice and anyone with knowledge of herbs could continue to use them, quoting from the text, that at all time from henceforth it shall be lawful to every person being the king's subject, having knowledge and experience of the nature of herbs, roots and waters. And Nicholas Culpepper in 1616 to 1654 uh, was an apothecary who lived in a time when fees uh, paid or charged by the medical professionals were out of the reach of the general public. So Culpepper translated the medical text from Latin to English and sold copies at a low price to the apothecaries and anyone who could read so that they could use these life-saving works. Henry VIII and Culpepper saved herbal medicine for the people, and thanks to the work in England of uh, Fred Fletcher Hyde and other herbalists, the 1968 Medicines Act allowed herbalists to continue to prescribe and prepare herbal medicines under Section 12, Part 1, and Section 12, Part 2 of this Act. However, uh, with the current relationship with the European Union, European law uh, is now having a profound influence on the daily lives of herbalists, including the jurisdiction of herbal medicine. Uh, European law is founded on Napoleonic law, not common law, and Napoleonic law is based on the premise that everything is illegal unless it's deemed legal. So completely back to front. Uh, anyway, I know that the uh, the uh, National Institute of Medical Herbalists is still working t- fairly tirelessly to keep the practice uh, out of the reach of exclusion from the uh, Brussels uh, <laughs> establishment, and I think you're probably... Uh, you're a member of the National Institute of Medical Herbalists, aren't you? No. Or um, MCPP. Yeah. Right. Okay, in England there's two two uh, authorita- uh, authoritative bodies on herbal medicine. The National Institute of Medical Herbalists, which I think is uh, founded in 1864, and then the um, College of Practicing Phytotherapists, which actually is probably more allied to the European ESCOP, the mm, European Society on Pharmacopoeia. Yeah, mm-hmm. on, on the... Good. Okay. So, again, then, uh, this mirrors a kind of restriction and influence one system of medicine has against another, uh, limiting freedom of choice to the patient. Uh, we're not quite there, both in the UK and the US. 
but as we've mentioned many times in past shows here on KMUD, the overreaching corporations in tandem with government and lobbyists are seeking to eliminate any competition in favour of monopoly in the hands of the pharmaceutical and medical industries. It's only by the power of we the people speaking out against any restrictive legislation that this will be avoided. A good example is the current legislation now forcing vaccination on the people using the law to monopolise profits in the name of the greater good when the very industry producing vaccines is indemnified by law against punitive damages when individuals are crippled or killed by adverse drug events, many of which are clearly identified as the adjuvants within vaccines, like aluminum, for example. It's one thing to produce safe, effective vaccines and quite another to manufacture drugs which have been linked to autism and other neurological impairment. And we have spoken about this at uh, a, fa- a fairly good length. Uh, Dr. Pete, uh, on the subject of aut- autism, uh, I wanted to ask Sophie the same question afterwards uh, and then get your feedback about the answer that she's going to have, which I haven't really asked her at this point. I'm not too sure what she's going to say, and I definitely don't know what you're going to say. Uh, but what do you see as a safe approach to helping the autistic child, and what do you see as a cause? Uh, I, I think just about anything harmful to the the parents, especially the mother, uh, and especially during pregnancy, almost any environmental harm is going to increase the rate of autism. Uh, For example, environmental estrogens and things that cause hypothyroidism, uh, things that cause uh, obesity, uh, are known to uh, be causes of of autism. But uh, I think... Uh, for example, in Texas, there was a, a study showing that uh, Latino uh, kids, especially me- Mexican uh, immigrants, were had a much lower rate of autism uh, than the, the well-medicalized uh, uh, white uh, uh, residents. And uh, I, I think a, a major cause uh, of uh, a major source of adversity during pregnancy is what John Goffman uh, saw was the major cause of cancer, breast cancer and heart disease in the United States, namely medical radiation uh, mm-hmm. or medicalization in general in the case of autism, including uh, too many x-ray exams for the mother, uh, uh, too, too many treatments in general, including uh, bad thyroid therapy, uh, bad endocrine therapy and uh, use of many toxic drugs. And uh, uh, touching uh, has been uh, identified as one of the things that um, makes uh, kids' uh, emotional system and nervous system develop properly. Mm. And uh, there has been a a kind of a culture of uh, ignoring the babies Mm. in, in the uh, standard American culture and in Latinos, uh, they are very touchy compared to the, the Anglo population. So uh, I think there are uh, lots of causes and uh, enriching the environment, removing toxins, uh, and improving the thyroid and progesterone uh, of, of the person's system. All of the endocrine uh, system uh, can be modified and improved too. A remedy to some extent at least the autistic yeah. okay Sophie I wanted to mm-hmm. uh, ask you this, the same kind of thing and then uh, uh, anecdotal um, yeah. <clears throat> evidence yeah I have a couple of friends whose children have been 
quite severely autistic at some point. And these, um, my friends have actually been incredibly dedicated. Um, they've been very dedicated mothers, for, um, but they've been very dedicated to bringing their children on as far as they can to help to incorporate them into mainstream um, well, education and, and just have a better hope for their futures. And they've done a really great job of this, and they've definitely focused on their diets and on their gut health because with both of these um, children I can think of, um, their digestive habits or their um, bowel motions have been disturbed. And one friend I can think of in particular, um, when her autistic son used to go into what's called stimming, which is repetitive physical movements like jumping up and down the st- on the spot and um, acting um, kind of more hyperactively and less responsive to his mother, she used to visit a paediatrician and this paediatrician used to prescribe her son a strong antifungal because it was suspected that he had a huge um, fungal overgrowth which was almost creating an alcoholic syndrome or he was producing a lot of alcohol in his system and the antifungals would hugely modify his behaviour and help him take him on in leaps and bounds Dr. Pete, what do you what do you think about that? The uh, presence of gut organisms that uh, metabolise carbohydrates, producing ethanol, and how that um, could impact. Uh, uh, yeah, the the uh, intestinal flora uh, produce lots of toxins, but the, the, the yeast in particular uh, produce both alcohol and estrogen, mm. and uh, the, the estrogen is, is I think more toxic than the alcohol. <laughs> Okay, mm. there you go. Okay, Sophie, um, sleep disturbance then. Uh, and it's a very common presentation uh, that I think a lot of verbalists uh, get consulted about. Um, do you see many people with insomnia or other disturbances in sleep? And what do you treat this with? Well, I do now because I've been um, sort of spoken about as a bit of a sleep expert, but I have to thank Dr. Pete for that. <laughs> I was an eight-year insomniac, um, a rather a rather severe insomniac. It was extremely depressing and debilitating um, condition and situation to be in for such a long period of time. And when I re-hooked up and managed to speak to Sarah, your mm. wife, and you about it properly, um, you taught taught me about how Dr. Pete views um, insomnia. And then I started to learn the actual genuine, the true physiological approach to insomnia is that if you can get your stress hormones down, you're most likely going to sleep well. I was a chronic under-eater, not intentionally necessarily, but because when you're chronically stressed, you have a chronically depressed appetite. So I would say I was a chronic, a chronic under-eater or chronically calorie de- uh, deficit. And then I started to learn about um, sugars, about carbohydrates, about the right types of sugars to lay down as glycogen, that if we're really healthy and if our thyroid's helping us lay down glycogen, we should be able to, or a healthy individual should be able to get an eight-hour sleep because that eight-hour glycogen store feeds our active brain through, uh, through the night. And a very, very key point of understanding insomnia is to understand, first of all, that sleep is an active process. It is not a passive right. process. Right. Our brain does a huge amount of repair. We, our, our brain shrinks and we go into a deep rinse cycle. It's a very active process. And Dr. Pete might want to correct me on this. I think that the brain uses about 100 grams of of glucose through the night. So obviously and apparently to energize that active process of healing, we need to supply the brain with glucose. And if we've not laid down enough glycogen during the day, 
um, to sleep well at night, for our brain to be able to get dip into that res- uh, reserve, we're going to get a rise in stress hormones, which will catabolize our fat and our muscle um, to deliver that energy for the brain. But of course, a side effect to stress hormones or you know cortisol and, and adrenaline is mental alertness, which you don't want at night. So you've got to view insomnia actually as a daytime disorder, or which is presenting itself at night. Dr. Pete, um, what do you speak to in terms of uh, the liver's ability to store glycogen and any impairment in that which uh, would trigger insomnia? Uh, thyroid is the essential uh, thing for being able to store glucose in the form of glycogen in the liver in, in particular, but uh, the muscles are a major reservoir too besides the liver, and the brain itself uh, stores, when, when conditions are good, stores quite a bit of glycogen locally. And when you run out of glycogen in your brain, muscles, and liver, you mobilize free fatty acids out of stores. And the free fatty acids condition uh, cre- create the condition of uh, diabetes in the brain uh, mm-hmm. as well as uh, throughout the body. It turns off brain metabolism by essentially poisoning the mitochondria, blocking the ability to use any glucose that... Uh, your body produces by breaking down protein uh, with the stress hormones. Mm. Okay. Good so in, in the UK, and I'm sure in America as well, it's the same. We're, we're under this impossible situation where we're all told, told to keep carbohydrates and uh, avoid sugar. And some particularly health-conscious mothers even try and avoid fructose and fruits for the children, especially fruit juice. And adults are avoiding salt, and you've got a perfect storm for insomnia. So first of all, if I have a patient with insomnia, the first place to look at is diet, and the second place to look at is herbs. There you go. All right, so Sophie, uh, get, getting getting back to um, the kind of foundation of your background, you know, with your father being a herbalist, I th- did you say that it was three or four, three or four generations that he was? Well, I know it goes back about two hundred years, and I'm pretty sure it's four <laughs> generations. All but right. it's on my TED talk. Okay, right there you go. Well, let's let's talk about that very briefly then. Your your TED talk. Um, I think everybody who's listening's probably heard of TED talks. Now they do them in all sorts of different countries, and they are wide range of subjects. Um, so tell tell us a little bit about your TED talk, what you did, and where it was, and how. Well, I gave a TED talk with my sister Naomi. And the title was Why We Are Dependent on Plants for Medicine. We were given an opportunity opportunity to do a TED talk, and I felt the most important thing for me as a herbalist, anyway, was to reconnect in the you know reconnect the dots of people. People often think that herbs are some kind of archaic system, or even something to be degraded, like you know, as witchcraft or something. Whereas actually, it forms the bedrock of our most important medicines. So the medicines on the essential medicines list list of the um, World Health Organization. A significant proportion of that, those drugs are based on herbs. We would not have those herbs if it weren't for the discoveries in plants. So, what do you? What comes to your mind when you? Well, the most. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is morphine, because I mean, if you think about what people have gone through with the Second World War, I'm not sure if it was available in the First World War. It's tended to the wounds and, and grotesque injuries of wars. There's nothing that rivals morphine still as a as, a, mm-hmm. as an analgesic. And then you think about the uh, lidocaine, novocaine that was discovered from coca leaves. Then I think about aspirin, which I love. You think about um, the diabetes medicine from Galiga. What is that? I can't remember the name of that drug. Metformin. Yeah, Yeah, so metformin metformin that has its origins in (coughs) in goat's root. 
Um, you think about 90% of our chemotherapeutic drugs have their foundations mm. in plants like and taxol, natural, yeah, taxol from the from European yew tree yeah, and vinca vinblastine, yeah. greater periwinkle. I mean, so I feel that for me personally, it's very important to get that message out there that you look out to those fields and you're walking past essential medicines. Right. And I think, again, um, I know when we... Uh, well, when we were discussing the outline of the show on the way in, because you didn't, um, you didn't, you didn't show back up again. You've been out all day long, but basically, I drew up a guideline here of uh, questions and answers and things that I wanted to get Dr. Pete's perspective on. Uh, I know that you have. How long have you been? Is it eight years or so? How long has it, you discovered that sugar wasn't bad for you, and the whole thing turned around? Eight years. With, eight years ago, right? So, uh, quickly talk to me about um, how you implement what you've learned from Dr. Pete and everything that. Sarah would have discussed with you because I know you two are in dialogue pretty constantly by email going backwards and forwards with different patients and talking about them and how you know the success and what to do next and all the rest of it. How I implement personally? Yeah, yeah. As as a, as an herbalist, uh, a daughter of an herbalist of of a two hundred year old mm. uh, succession of people that are doctors, um, you know, herbal medicine was your mm. be all. Yeah, it was. Okay, and. I think I'm fair in saying that there is no one modality to cure anybody. No. It's a multi, multi-complex situation. Mm. So whether it's herbs, whether it's certain chemicals that are, you know, are drugs that are very helpful, whether it's, uh, you know, red light, whether it's sound, whether it's, you know, there's many different modalities that can really be brought together by a good practitioner to get the best result possible and when you were practicing obviously you would have got your knowledge from the same course the same university Mm. and and obviously from the whole background of your father Mm -hmm. having grown up in it since you were born um tell me some of the differences perhaps or some maybe some of the cases that you've come to and maybe hit a wall after which treating and looking at a different angle to it or using a different uh uh you know compounding conjunction with herbs with or without how that's uh, changed your practice oh how it's changed my practice mm. okay well um now what i do with my patients is i help them remove the good and bad tags they have all over all sorts of foods because they're often very misplaced and the problem with that what that does is it stops them the eating bad tags you mean like brainwashing that's associated with well you know sugar's bad right. you know salt's bad yeah, sugar's bad, salt's <laughs> bad, vegetable oil good, margarine good, butter bad, all that kind of stuff. Because actually what that's done, I think the, one of the worst things that that's done is it's removed people's instinctive eatings, uh, way, instinctive, um, you know, leading of how they eat. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they may well be hungry and they may well be craving salt, but still resisting that desire to eat salt and the same with sugar. Um, and you know, not so much protein mm-hmm. because that doesn't have that bad tag attached to it. Right. But they're denying themselves their basic physiological needs because they have this perception that food is bad. And I think that that's one of the worst things that's come out of it. Doctor Pete, what do you, what have you got to say about that in terms of sugar and salt, and uh, what you you believe is the kind of uh, undoing of the, the the instinctual craving for it? Oh, uh, those uh, doctrines against them uh, were distinctly created by the pharmaceutical industry uh, when they came out with new diuretics around 1950. Uh, they convinced doctors uh, that pregnant women had to use them because it would prevent weight gain and water retention in pregnancy. 
uh, and uh, just absolute uh, uh, confabulation, uh, making up diseases that didn't exist so they could sell their product. Uh, And uh, in the process, they uh, destroyed many, many pregnancies in the United States with their uh, salt restriction and plus diuretics. Uh, And uh, the uh, sugar uh, thing appeared around the same time uh, with the marketing of the polyunsaturated vegetable oils. Uh, uh, Those uh, were... um, defined as essential, and so uh, the, the food industry uh, first uh, uh, promoted them uh, as uh, medicinal in, in great quantity, a uh, hundred times uh, more than any possible theoretical essentiality uh, would indicate. But uh, they, they were promoted to lower uh, cholesterol, but, but then a, a doctor showed that uh, uh, sugar raises cholesterol, uh, and uh, so the, the food industry created the cholesterol myth to to sell their polyunsaturated uh, oils, uh, and then uh, to uh, explain uh, away heart disease uh, and uh, uh, the, the elevated cholesterol, which really is uh, uh, the result of hypothyroidism. Um, uh, almost all of it. Uh, the, uh, the the ban on, on sugar to to lower prevent heart disease uh, was promoted all through the, the 60s and 70s. Uh, again, uh, uh, the, the uh, insulin industry and the uh, the drug the alternatives to insulin uh, were uh, promoted. sugar-free diet, uh, teaching people that sugar causes diabetes. Yeah, and then again, of course, then there's a whole sugar feeds cancer uh, misdirection. Um, Sophie, what, what, are, what are fish oils doing in, in Europe and in England now? How, how do you get, I mean, are they still really advertised as really healthful and your patients are always talking about how good the fish oils are? Or you, you, yeah. pro- you probably set them right, but what do you think the general current thinking is? Yeah, I tend to steer them away, but the uh, buoyant, it's definitely still very buoyant. <clears throat> but interestingly, um, last year a... Uh, a newspaper published a study linking um, fish oils with liver disease. I think actually scarring of the liver, as far mm-hmm. as I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think that hit a mainstream newspaper last year in England. <laughs> I wonder, Dr. P, you probably have something to say about uh, liver scarring and uh, fish oil consumption from a from a physiological perspective or even a, um, an anecdot- anecdotal perspective. Um, yeah, lots of stresses contribute, but... Um uh, definitely not not good foods like saturated fats yeah. and sugar. Okay. All right, you're listening to Ask Your Doctor, KMUD Garbable, 91.1 FM. Uh, from now until 8 o'clock, uh, callers are invited to call in with any questions, either for Dr. Pete and or Sophie. Uh, and the number, if you live in the area or if you live outside the area or outside the country, uh, is area code 707 923 3911 so that's 707 923 3911 questions anytime from now until 8 I think we have a caller on the line already caller you're on the air uh, what's your name uh, where are you from and what's your question uh, Jeff from Long Island hey Jeff I have two questions um, 
for Dr. Pete. Um, one, um, the soils that uh, plants are, are grown in obviously don't have the same minerals that they used to, as we all know. And um, there's a couple of products that have gotten a lot of attention, fulvic and humic acids, which apparently are coming from, you know, rock formations that are, you know, very old. Um, are you familiar with those and whether the enzymes and the uh, natural minerals associated with those are complementary and beneficial in any way? Uh, no, I think they're mildly harmful. Because? Uh, uh, they, uh, to the extent that they break down, uh, they can be absorbed and, and release toxic things. Uh, any minerals such, such as magnesium uh, and uh, trace minerals would be beneficial, but uh, the, the substance, the fulvic acid and humic acid, uh, are not in themselves safe. Okay, are there studies on that, or is that just that uh, yeah, you're aware yeah, of, yeah. or is that just a gut feel that you have? Is that something you've done you've done research on in the past, or uh, no? You, you can find articles uh, on uh, PubMed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the articles I've found have all been actually favorable, and the reason I mention it and I'm pushing it a little bit is because I am actually the same person who told you that I had a skin rash uh, on the insides of my uh, armpits and elbows. For literally, it was went on for 12 months. I mean, literally 12 months. They told me to take cortisone, um, which I didn't want to do. Um, so the suggestions you have to refresh were, you know, taking the salt baths um, with uh, baking soda, which I think was very helpful. CO2, um, I think you mentioned vitamin D. Um, and so, so I did some of that stuff, and it was very helpful. But I must say, I believe the fulvic and humic acids, which I took more recently, have actually improved the assimilation um, and the enzymatic absorption of all nutrients that I consume. Uh, I really do believe that. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a lot of articles are very positive on it. Now, maybe there are some mixtures that are toxic relative to others, but I am a strong believer in that. But anyway, okay, so that's one... I actually would love to see if you write up on that and actually can reference specific articles that describe the damage that can be done by them. I'd be really curious, but I, I found in personal experience that it might just actually be the opposite. Anyway, the other question I have relates to um, thyroid. I think at one point we discussed the fact that it's not, you know, compared to an adrenal gland, which apparently can repair itself on its own, the same is true of any gland, including the thyroid gland. But the bigger, more complicated issue I think we discussed was it's, it's more important because PUFA and other issues um, may affect the uh, production, transport, conversion, and uptake of T3 into the cell. And so I guess my question specifically is if someone is improving their consumption where the PUFA is down and therefore the uptake, transport, and conversion is better, why isn't it possible to eliminate thyroid? Why, it just seems to me that for some reason um, you're taking thyroid all the time, and if you're complying with the diet, it seems to me that the benefits of improvement of the adrenal gland should also apply to the thyroid gland for somebody who's a strict proponent of your diet. Where am I, where am I missing? I've seen lots of people who either... Uh, were able to stop their thyroid supplement or greatly reduce it. Uh, 
uh, and that happens uh, one or two people. It happened in a week. Uh, they they broke the pattern so quickly. It, uh, they didn't need it after having been in very serious condition. Uh, others take three or four years. Uh, for example, a fat person uh, who is uh, well saturated with unsaturated fats has to uh, get rid of a lot of that stored uh, thyroid inhibiting fat before they can uh, get away from a supplement. Well, what about all the uh, electromagnetic radiation that's uh, certainly disruptive to uh, thyroid activity that's nothing to do with uh, diet? There's uh, yeah, uh, and, and the environmental estrogens. Yeah. Uh, there are so many uh, things like uh, uh, in to- tooth filling material, uh, packaging of food, uh, just in uh, almost any food, you'll get some of these estrogens, yeah. which well, block the thyroid. All right. Well, thank you. And, thank you for your call. And, and, and Andrew, one, yeah. one other question that you okay, just, quickly, you just we raised. We do have a couple so, of other so people waiting. If I can. Um, so you mentioned red light earlier, and I just wanted to understand in Dr. Pete's mind the benefits of red light. What does it physiologically do relative to the CO2, whether it's CO2 through, you know, putting yourself in a bag or, or, or putting yourself in a tub. What, what is it actually? The CO2 itself, I understand, lowers or stops any production of nitric oxide. And what does the red light do? Because they're, they're different benefits, are they not? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, very different. Uh, uh, red light has a, a variety of effects, all uh, involving a- action on electrons, which are uh, out of their normal uh, condition or orbit. Uh, especially cytochrome oxidase, uh, copper enzyme, the blue enzyme of of the crucial enzyme uh, of oxidative metabolism, uh, stress lowers that activity. Just going through the night, uh, it lowers lowers its ability to oxidize uh, nutrients. And um, just a few minutes of exposure to red light will restore uh, the Uh, electronic balance of the copper and restore the copper to its uh, relation to the enzyme, activating the enzyme. Uh, But uh, uh, there are a lot of other uh, effects related to inflammation. For example, uh, radiation poisoning uh, at a lethal dose uh, can be neutralized uh, to the point that the animal will survive by exposing uh, within the first hour or so uh, to red light following the X-ray or gamma radiation. Excellent, Dr. Pete. Uh, really appreciate your uh, reply there. We do have two other callers, so I uh, don't mean to rush you, but let's make sure these other callers uh, get their calls in. And anybody else listening, it's Ask Your Dr. K. Mudi Galvaville, ninety-one point one FM, from now until eight o'clock. Oh, there goes the, sh- the lights. I think we have three callers. Seven zero seven nine two three three nine one one. Okay, uh, let's take this next caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? Uh, from uh, Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. Yeah, go ahead. What's your question? Uh, so one question is, uh, there's perhaps it's a fad, but what are the benefits of drinking uh, 16 ounces of celery juice a day? Or is that just Sophie, Sophie you go, go ahead and 
Well, there, the salary juicing is is a real craze in the UK right now. Maybe it is here as well. So I people really are, too much yeah, that, people actually. are juicing about um, <laughs> three whole you know heads and stems of salary mm-hmm. juice each morning. And I don't know specifically what it is, but I think there's a huge amount of minerals in there, including um, potassium. And people do seem to feel much better on it and lose some water retention. Okay, Dr. Pete, uh, what do you know about uh, celery juice and its uh, its activity? I know celery seed is definitely used in the treatment of uh, gout um, as a uh, waste-clearing um, mechanism for the kidneys. But uh, do you know much about celery juicing? I think the main problem is that quite a few people are allergic to it. All right. Okay. Huh. Can I ask one You go ahead. Yep, go ahead quickly. Uh, so, for Dr. Pete, how much sugar do you consume a day, and, and what are the ways that you get it? Is it uh, white sugar and fruit juice, or...? Uh, oh, oh, I try to get it uh, all from fruit, but when I don't have good fruit, then I fill in uh, with uh, uh, white, white refined sugar. Uh, and I try to get uh, more than half of my calories from sugar. There you go. All so, right. like a thousand calories? Oh no, more like uh, fifteen, sixteen hundred. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> when, 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 yeah, I was going to say when you're uh, when you're thinking and you're processing information, and you're sitting on the computer and you're researching stuff and answering calls, the brain is very hungry. Mm-hmm. Okay, next caller, you're on the airway from. What's your question? Hi, I'm from Australia. Um. My question is, I've had some blood tests done recently, um, and my circulating iron is fine, but my iron, my ferritin is actually quite low, and I've been um, eating a thyroid-supportive diet for over 12 months now and following um, a lot of your methods, Dr. Pete, um, but the doctor's suggesting that I should have some iron injections um, I, when I eat my red meat, I have that with orange juice to try and increase the absorption, um, but still it's quite low. Um, I'm just wondering whether I should have those injections or if there's another method that I can use to increase um, iron levels. How was the iron measured as the first? Uh, it was blood tests. Uh, um, uh, um, there was the ferritin was 6 uh, micrograms per litre. Uh, uh, Fasting uh, blood. Sorry, pe- sorry. Uh, was the saturation of, of transferrin was that one of? Sorry. Uh, Iron saturation. Did you have your? Yeah, transferrin saturation done. Yes, three and a half grams per liter. Uh, what was the percentage? Three and a half grams per liter. Yes. Uh, no, I mean the percentage yeah. of the saturation. They haven't given a percentage. The results I've got have just got three and a half mil uh, grams per litre. Uh, that would be uh, uh, hemoglobin, wouldn't it? Well, it says transferritin, and then it's got TIBC of 76 micromillimoles per litre. Saturation 10, ferritin 6, iron 7.8. We might use different... Um, measures here. Well, Dr. Pete, uh, your your rationale for in- increasing—I know—I know you're always wary about increasing iron 
uh, as it's yeah. extremely reactive and uh, a powerful oxidant. Um, but in terms in in terms of what the the lady is talking about, having um, done those things dietarily, uh, what would what would be another step, so far as your perspective uh, is concerned, for raising uh, this lady's iron and her hemoglobin and getting her saturation back up? Um, the um, hemoglobin uh, depends on body temperature for one thing. Uh, thyroid. Mm-hmm is required for absorbing uh, 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 copper from your diet. And the copper okay. is needed for uh, integrating the iron with with the uh, uh, blood, with the heme, uh, and uh, getting your, your waking temperature uh, up to uh, close to normal, uh, close to 98 degrees at waking and 98.6 during the day and making sure that your arms and uh, legs uh, are warm uh, close to to your your body temperature. Uh, It's possible to have a normal oral temperature and still have very cold feet, and the the Mm. blood is is made in your long bones, so they have to be warm. And and thyroid is the main uh, uh, factor keeping the the blood synthesis going and the copper absorption uh, to use the iron. And uh, you can get a, a very high intake of, of iron in a safe way if you eat uh, some liver and eggs every day and, and have orange juice with it. Okay. I am having liver, um, about 200 grams per week. I have um, probably two eggs every second day. Um, I also... Um, my rising, temp- my rising temperature is usually around 36. I don't know the conversion um, to Fahrenheit or to yeah, Fahrenheit, so I'm not sure. Um, but I am doing all those things to improve. But my stores are still low 12 months later. So there's nothing else I can do. You wouldn't recommend having the iron injections? Um, if, if your iron saturation is... Uh, down around five percent uh, mm-hmm. or lower, uh, uh, mm-hmm. then that might justify. Uh, have you tried oral supplements? I haven't at this stage. I'm I, I've known fan, people but... who, who had such terrible effects from iron injections that uh, okay. I think uh, it would be if you're uh, seriously low in saturation. Then uh, I think the first thing would be uh, if if the liver and eggs haven't worked and oysters are another very good source i have those as well <laughs> sophie how about, i have those as well how about how about from a, a herbal perspective sophie because i know you've dealt with this before well um traditionally speaking to strengthen the blood but i've also seen in practice nettle can help there's okay. a regular sting in nettle and it's an infusion as or are you tea, talking about just an as extract? a tea or as a juice um, and then also blackstrap molasses, but that also is because it has iron content and I think also has copper. But blackstrap molasses daily and nettle tea, you know, strong nettle tea might help. Because I, I suppose the fear is if you have a hemorrhage or if you have an accident, your stores aren't there. Okay, we do have three other right. callers. I, I don't want to... Okay, thank you for your yeah, time. I thank you for calling in, but we've got three more. So let's get the next one call away from. What's your question? Hi, I'm from Texas. I had two questions for Dr. Pete. Okay, make, we'll make them yeah. quick. <laughs> Dr. Pete, if we yeah. can make your responses fairly quick, uh, these next couple of people will get a chance to answer, uh, ask a question too before 8 o'clock. 
Yeah, so first, what can be done for someone who has a high temperature and pulse but still has chronic fatigue and mm. other hypothyroid symptoms? Right. Okay, from an yeah. adre- adrenaline perspective, what, Dr. Pete, somebody with a high waking temperature and still has lethargy and... Um, uh, yeah, checking your uh, vitamin D level and your calcium intake, uh, those support your thyroid function. Uh, and uh, their uh, uh, magnesium and calcium uh, are, are necessary for the thyroid to work right. And you would uh, you would equate that waking temperature to be an adrenaline-based stress hormone-dominated uh, physiology? Or? Uh, uh, yeah, you should check your, your pulse rate and the same... Uh, at the same time as your uh, waking temperature, but also uh, about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if your temperature is steady, even after you've had some carbohydrate, fruit right. juice and such, uh, uh, then it, it might be something other than uh, high, high adrenaline. Okay. And what was your second question, Cora? Yeah, um, I was wondering if you've heard of chlorine dioxide and if you think it would help for reductive stress issues like autistic symptoms, I, I think there are, there are, and just things like that. There, there are lots of antiseptic uh, uh, agents uh, that are safer than that. It isn't especially dangerous, but uh, long-time use um, could uh, promote cancer. Uh, things like uh, food fibers. Uh, any kind of fibrous food that uh, goes through you without causing inflammation or gas uh, will help to uh, disinfect your intestine. And so, Sophie, you uh, you wanted to interject here, so yeah, I've personally had experienced brain irritation myself in the past, and I've definitely linked it to my gut. And one of the things I've used for patients in the past and for myself also is a herb called cat's claw, which is very anti-inflammatory on the gut and, um, you know, antimicrobial, etc. But it's also, I believe, got some research for brain inflammation too. Excellent. Okay, so let's get this uh, next caller. Caller, yeah, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Is that me? Yeah, that's you. Go ahead. What's your Hi. question? Where are you from? I'm from the Garberville area. Okay. And I'm calling because um, this is a very pertinent show for me. I'm uh, nearly seven months pregnant with my first child. Okay. Well, and we're choosing to go a very natural route. Mm-hmm. Um, in our local paper here, The Independent, just Tuesday, mm-hmm. they published that there's a potential outbreak of whooping cough, uh, also known as pertussis, mm-hmm. in our area. Um, there have been a few cases recorded so far this year. They're not labeling it as an outbreak yet, right. but I had a couple of questions about the treatments recommended by Sophie with the garlic Mm -hmm. and the thyme syrup. Um, Are those safe enough and recommended to be safe enough for small children, infants? Um, Also, is the thyme syrup uh, meant to be made from fresh thyme or dried thyme? And if Sophie wouldn't mind repeating those uh, four wonderfully useful things that the thyme uh, syrup does that's helpful with whooping cough thank you yeah of course um so thyme syrup is usually made from dried thyme and the four act the four actions of thyme are it's antitussive reduces the cough reflex it's expectorant it helps you cough um the phlegm up it's antiseptic and it's also anti-edematous so it reduces swelling in the airways too that's wonderful Uh, do you think it's safe enough to use on very small children 
Well, I used it on my son from, I mean, to be honest with you, with my son, I happily gave it to him from about six months onward. And if he had a need, I possibly would would have given it to him earlier too, but in much, much reduced doses. I mean, you may be able to give drop doses even. Hmm. Okay, good. Thank you. And do you think the the garlic sounds fairly innocuous enough to try something like that on a small child as well? It is innocuous. You just don't want to leave it on for so long that it burns. Right, very quickly. Well, maybe a couple of minutes. Actually, I heard a <laughs> trick to keep it from burning is peel it without actually damaging the skin. And the, the, the trick I heard was to put it in a sock against the, the infant's okay. foot oh. and just overnight. And, but if you break the actual skin of the bulb, then mm-hmm. that oil comes out and it burns. Oh, great. So very, very gentle peeling. Yeah. Okay, lovely. So peeled whole clove of garlic, not like sliced clove of garlic. Yeah, because the oil was more irritating. That's just a trick I'd heard. I mm. don't have mm, an infant. Yeah. So. I've tried it on myself, though, and it is very, very different. You can hold that clove against you for all day. Right, yeah, that's great. Okay, Dr. P, uh, do, do you want to quickly say anything about whooping cough? Um, no, I haven't nope. had okay. any experience with it. Okay. All right. Is that is that the call? We've got through the callers. Okay, so... Yes, thank uh, you so much. You're very welcome. Um, anybody else? Have you got any calls? You can quickly squeak in a quick one between now and 8 o'clock, but I want to have uh, a few minutes here. Okay, the engineer's shaking his head going, no, no, no. Okay, <clears throat> let's, just, let's just leave it the way it is and uh, appreciate people calling in. Uh, always adds interest to the show and um, mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for uh, the acknowledgement that people are listening even though sometimes we have these shows and we don't get too many callers but uh, as always I keep saying that um, these things are recorded in posterity and uh, you know they're on the internet and they're on YouTube and um, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Pete uh, about something to do about making sure the evidence and the, in- the uh, information is actually correct so Dr. Pete uh, let me just thank you very much for your time uh, again this month uh, we really appreciate it and I'm going to give out some information about you uh, right away okay thanks thank you okay so people that have listened to the show dr pete's website is www.raypete.com uh he's got plenty of articles there he's been doing this for 40 plus years um and sophie lamb medical herbalist or medical herbalist uh from england sorry scotland not england from scotland uh gosh you're like a probably a fifth generation or sixth <laughs> sixth generation herbalist anyway it's alive and well in scotland and your dad's 82 He's been doing this for a long time, and he is very much uh, alive and well doing it. Yep. And uh, if you've got any uh, way that people to reach you, perhaps you might want to share with people. Yeah. Um, well, my my sleep specific site is called donecountingsheep.com. So D O N E countingsheep.com. That's dedicated to sleep. Right. But I also have my own website, which is sophielam.com. Sophielam.com, and you're a member of the. Uh, College of Practicing Phytotherapists, the yep. CPP in England. Very good. Okay. Um, okay, so for those people that have tuned in, I uh, appreciate you calling. Uh, I can be reached Monday through Friday, uh, any other time, I guess, really, because it's a toll-free number and I may not answer the phone, but leave a message. I will always get back to you. Uh, I can email me, andrew, at westernbotanicalmedicine.com or one eight 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 wbm herb and uh, as i said before on the last couple of shows uh, we are intending to get a what do you want to call it an authoritative um source uh, of dr pete's information his uh, tireless tireless explanation scientifically so that people can see it for what it really is and we we love we love to see real science in action mm-hmm. i am totally 
uh, an advocate of scientifically backed medicine, herbal medicine, alternative medicines. There's no reason to ban any of it. Let's just be uh, rational about this and produce good results for people. That's all we want to do is see people get better. Um, so until the third Friday of next month, actually, you know what? I won't be here third Friday of next month. That's right, August next month. I will not be here. So it's going to be September. So I just need to... I need to check in with the studio about that so I get a replacement. But next month I will not be here. But back again in September. So until the third Friday of September, I uh, wish you all good night and uh, thanks for joining in.